welcome to Living Well into the Future. I'm your host, Julie B. Adler. The series brings men and women ranging in age from their teens through their 90s to discuss food, housing, climate, and health. Our guests are problem solvers, solution makers. Learn what their contributions and experiences were and are, their challenges and their successes. Our goal is to spark your discussions among and between generations to inspire action toward a healthy and secure future for all. If you missed our first five episodes of the series on housing, or any of our four-part series on food, or just want to listen to certain episodes again, you can find them on WTBR-FM, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or any place you stream your podcasts. You can even ask your smart device to play Living Well Into the Future podcasts. In this episode, we're going to provide perspectives on what we call homelessness, or unhomed, or unhoused, from the perspective of Julie McDonald, an emergency center manager working for ServiceNet, a nonprofit in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. Courtney Kimball, program manager in charge of transitional housing for Construct Berkshire in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. Nina Lockwood and Cameron Rees, both in their 20s, who met while both were homeless and in transitional housing in San Antonio, Texas. They founded the Youth Action Board of the South Alamo Regional Alliance for the Homeless, SARA, to provide youth input into the policies and programs targeted to homeless youth. Last, we'll hear again from Leela Powell, Executive Director of LISC San Antonio, who is also Board President for SARA. Julie, we hear a lot about homeless problems, but it's when it's visible. It's when people are on the streets disturbing the populace. Yes. Disturbing. Yes. That's, I like the way you say that, because I think that we, one of the epidemics that we've been in for a very long time in this country is we don't want to see the problems. And when we see the problem, we blame the problem. Right. So one of the issues here in downtown that we come up against a lot is we get calls and complaints about your people are over here doing this. They aren't really our people. We don't own them. We do not claim ownership, nor should we. We are not responsible for the choices that people make. But the other issue is that even people who are not staying in our shelter, if you see public drunkenness, they automatically like, oh, that's your people. I don't know about you, Julie, but I grew up in Vermont. There was a lot of public drunkenness <laughs> in Vermont and people were homes. And I think that part of that, what it comes down to is, unbeknownst to many of us, is that we don't want to see it because it, it reminds us that something's wrong. Or that we ourselves are vulnerable, but for a twist of fate. That's what I mean. There's something wrong in our system. That could put any of us in that position. Some of us might be one or two paychecks away from that. Others might be a little further away, but yes, it can happen. And so we prefer to just put these blinders on and say, don't disturb my worldview here. And then we tend to blame the victims and say, if they just pull themselves up by the bootstraps, 
just go get a job. I worked as a single parent. I've worked in human services all of my life. And I can't tell you the amount of times that I was late on my rent or I couldn't pay a medical bill because I had to pay rent or feed my children or anything like that. And I worked hard all of my life. So it's not just a matter of someone being lazy. Again, this is a systemic issue. That is Julie McDonald. She is the interim site manager of the emergency shelter in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, administered by ServiceNet. The St. Joe's shelter is the only emergency shelter in the entire Berkshire County. Julie has worked with the homeless for the past 30 years, first in Salem, Massachusetts, and then in Troy, New York. She compares the situation in Troy 30 years ago to now. That was 1990. So the need wasn't as great. There was more money and things available to be able to shelter people more quickly than it is now. I think that back then, we were also just hitting the period where a lot of the um, mental health, the what they called the group homes and things like that started closing down. So it really was at the point of where we started hitting this real crisis. There were a lot of treatment facilities then. There were a lot of residential facilities then. And we don't have the same number now that we did then. So I think that was another part of it. And of course, I was next to Albany. So Albany had several shelters as well. So if we didn't have a bed, there was, it, it was pretty close by to be able to refer them to somewhere else. There were also other agencies in that area, like Traveler's Aid, which they would buy people bus tickets to bus them to another shelter somewhere if needed. So a lot of the resources that were available in 1990 are not available now. And the need is greater. And the need is greater, correct. Let's turn now to Courtney Kimball. She's program manager for Construct, a nonprofit with the goal of bringing affordable housing to the Southern Berkshires. She recently received the Unsung Hero Award from the Nonprofit Center of the Berkshires. Courtney, June Wolf, your housing manager at Construct, recently told us that there are 672 people on your waiting list and only about 77 whom you can house. How are the circumstances of the people on the waiting list different from those trying to get into transitional housing? So I manage the transitional housing program, but then usually when people call Construct for help, I get those calls, I feel those calls. And then if we can't help, I will refer them out to places that can. So in the transitional housing program specifically, there is a little bit more guidelines as to who can be in the program. So somebody who can apply for our housing, who need affordable or low-income housing, they can be doubled up with family. They can have their own apartment. It's just a lot more than what they can afford in transitional housing. That program's meant for people coming out of homelessness or are at risk of homelessness. So they're going to be evicted or have a history of homelessness. That's the short answer. And from the time you started five or six years ago to now, have the people who you're seeing who are coming for help changed? Yes, absolutely. I've never seen so many families in need, families living in cars, in tents. I just spoke with a woman today, 34 weeks pregnant, living in her car. She's having some complications with pregnancy. I definitely see more families, more working class people who they say, I can afford apartment in the area. I just can't find one. And they're having to 
leave Berkshire County because they can't find housing here. And it's affected the employers too, having employees left and right having to leave because they can't commute and they can't find housing here. As she indicated, for Courtney to place individuals in transitional housing, which bridges the gap between homelessness and living in affordable housing, strict governmental requirements must be satisfied. The emergency shelter Julie McDonald runs fills a need more immediately. Julie, can you give me some examples of the circumstances you find people in when they come to you and who you can help and who you can't help? If I were to just boil it down to the base of it, if we're looking at helping by giving people somewhere to sleep, which is our primary thing, is to give someone somewhere safe to sleep off of the streets, then we theoretically, we could help nearly any because if we're just giving you a bed to sleep in. Now, of course, for me, help goes beyond that. It's about helping people to to access resources, which are minimal right now, quite frankly. Also to be able to access support, to be able to find affordable housing, which is very difficult right now, and sustainable housing. Because one of the things, Julie, that We hear a lot about, and I think you talked about, you were doing a podcast on that, is this housing first model, which in and of itself, theoretically, is a good model. The issue becomes, if it was just about getting people into a place to live, then we wouldn't have this homelessness crisis right now. Because many of the people have gotten into places to live. They are not able to sustain it, whether it is due to generational poverty whether it is due to untreated mental health issues, untreated addiction issues, or just not having the skill set to be able to manage and sustain and stay in a home and take care of themselves. It's a whole big basket of things. It's not as simple as, ah, just open up one of the abandoned houses, fix it, and put people in it. They'll be good to go. We won't have this crisis anymore. Because the homelessness crisis is a symptom of a systemic issue. That has yet to change. Let's turn back to Courtney and see what she finds are the characteristics of the people who seek transitional or affordable housing from construct. We're always going to have people come to us who have addiction or mental health issues. Um, But I've really, it's not as much as you'd think. I have a client right now in transitional who they have degrees. They've had a house before and their partner passed away and just lost everything within a couple of months. So we really get people of all walks of life, especially a lot of these families, they don't have any addiction or any mental health. It's like they just found themselves in a really tough spot and they just can't get back on their feet. The main thing I've been seeing is a lot of families had to leave their houses because that the owner was selling or the owner wanted to do short-term rentals instead or wanted to raise the rent. We've seen a lot of that in the beginning. A lot of families leaving because they just couldn't afford what the landlord wanted to increase and there's no rent cap in mass. So as long as that lease is up, You can increase it as much as you want. Then a family would have to leave. We're getting the picture that people who are unhoused are more varied than the stereotype of homeless that we carry. 
Julie McDonald is also the program director of the Living in Recovery program of ServiceNet in Pittsfield. Julie, let's turn to the people who come into the emergency shelter. What resources do you have to help them beyond providing a bed? We have case managers at ServiceNet. Each person that comes in is assigned a case manager, and then they will meet with the case manager to determine what are their housing goals, what are their other goals that they might have, and then they work with them on if they can get money, such as RAF, like the rental assistance program, trying to find affordable housing, going through Pittsfield Housing or Berkshire Regional Housing, any of those places like that. We've developed relationships with landlords in the area of apartments or even of like rooming house where they just rent the bedrooms to them. And then of course, we, if people are in need, we refer to mental health services, substance abuse services. But again, an important part of this that's significant and can limit, is this what the person wants? Because they are still independent, sovereign human beings that have a right to make their own decisions about their life. And so we see a lot of people coming in with untreated mental health. But if they're either A, they have a history where they felt invalidated or violated by the mental health system, and so they don't want to have anything to do with it, or they've managed in their life enough and they don't don't think that they have mental health issues. And again, the way that it's designed right now is if they don't think they have a problem, then how do we get them to have substance abuse issues? Listen, I'm a person that's in recovery myself from alcohol and drug addiction. If I were homeless, when I decided that I need to change my life, I don't know if I would have been able to maintain recovery. Because imagine trying to not use the very self-medicating that people do when they have a substance use disorder. And now you're going and you're staying in a shelter. And so you have no home. You have no self-esteem. You can only have so many belongings. You're sleeping on a cot. You got strangers in the room next to you. You have no idea who they are. They're using. It's a setup, right? So many people keep using because they've lost hope. They've lost that hope. And even if they have a little bit of hope, when you're around it enough, you're going to use. So it just, there's so many, it's like a big ball of yarn that your cat gets a hold of. And you think it's easy. You just pull on the string. But it's not that easy. It's all tangled in the middle of it. St. Joe's shelter is an adult shelter. Teens under 18 can't be housed, nor can families. Many people fall through the cracks. Julie McDonald here is speaking about the adults who fall through the cracks. Who are the people her shelter serves? I think what happens to the people that fall between the cracks is they wind up staying in the shelter system. It's a recidivism. I have only been at the shelter for, oh, not quite two years, but in that time, we have some people that have been there the whole time that I've been there. Oh, so there is no limit on the amount of time they can stay? There can't be nowadays, because then what would happen? And I think that it's a a double-edged sword, because in some ways it's like, okay, on the other hand, there's the old school thinking, which I still fall victim to sometimes, right? Of if I don't think I have to do anything to change, then I won't. But some people aren't, again, they aren't necessarily capable of it without those systems in place to support that change because it's not so easy 
to just change your mind. It's not so easy to just change your behavior. It's not so easy. When you look at the complications and the complexities of homelessness, it's not just about go to the shelter, find a place to live, get a job. You're good to go. Good luck. It's not that simple. I wish it were. Service actually does have a recovery home as well over in Greenfield area. We have an outpatient treatment facility in Pittsfield and other places as well. But where the other place where I'm the director is a, it's more of just a support center. It's not treatment. It's not therapy. It's a place for people to come to that are in recovery or interested in recovery that offers opportunities for them to engage with other people who are trying to not use and learn how to have fun, learn how to do different things. While some of the people from the shelter may come over here during our open hours and that to have a safer place to be so it's not as tempting. Because if you're walking around on the streets all day, you're running into all your old buddies you used to drink with. It's hard to say no. It's hard to not say, ah, screw it. I'm homeless anyway. Why not have a drink? So yeah, so some of those people might come over here. But I'll be honest with you, it's very hard to engage them. Because again, at the end of the day, they're going back to the shelter. They're going back to that feeling of hopelessness. They're going back to the complications of relationships in a shelter and all of these different people. They're going back to having to feel like they're children because they have to be told, keep your mask up, blah, blah, blah. You can't go outside to smoke a cigarette unless staff is going out there during the smoke break because otherwise the neighborhood starts going up in arms because, God forbid, there's homeless people outside. Hey, don't get me wrong. I'm talking about, you know, a lot of the reaction of some of the community, but I need to also be clear and say that there are many community members, many community businesses that have been so supportive of us and have stood up and spoke out for us and for the people that we're serving. So I want to make that really clear. But it seems that the squeaky wheel gets the oil. Courtney, how did people move from the shelter to transitional housing? If somebody was interested in transitional, for instance, at Construct, I have to do an assessment for them, and then they're scored, and then they're put on like a wait list. And then People who score the highest are the ones that I have to take into the program. So I have to meet HUD's definition of homelessness. And sometimes doubling up doesn't always count as homeless. I consider that homeless if you're living in a closet. I feel like that's not stable housing. Or if you live with a parent or a sibling, that doesn't count as homeless. Oh, the only time I could do an assessment for those people is if they had something in writing from the parent or the sibling saying that they have to leave by this certain date. And then if it's within 14 days, I can do that assessment with them and they can be put on the list. But the people that are going to score the highest are going to be the people who are homeless the longest, have mental health challenges, disabilities, that type of thing. So a lot of people who have never faced homelessness and they're now they're living in a hotel, they're not going to score very high depending on how long they've been there and if they have other challenges. It's just, it's a model that doesn't always work for every area. It might work in more cities and that type of thing, but it doesn't. A lot of people do fall through the cracks when we're using that model in places in South Berkshire. Tell me something about the, the transitional housing. How many people can you accommodate? 
how many people are waiting to be accommodated, and how long do they stay with you? Yeah, on the same property, we have the two houses. We have a men's house and a woman's house, and there's five in each house. So there's 10 people in the program at every, any given time. They can stay up there up into the program for up to two years. So after a year, I usually do like an assessment with them, see where they're at, what they need to focus on for the next year to get housed because they absolutely cannot stay past that two-year mark. And now we are finding that people are staying a lot longer because it's so hard to get them housing. I have three out of the 10 with vouchers and I can't even get them housed. If somebody said, I'm interested in the transitional housing program, I go on and I do an assessment for them through HUD. And then anytime that I know a room's opening up, I know someone's moving out. I notify HUD. People coming into transitional, they don't have to be coming right from the shelter, but usually the people who score really high on the assessments are at the shelter because there's no other shelters. So I work a lot with the caseworkers at ServiceNet who have done these assessments with people and they know them. They're really pretty, pretty strict about that type of thing. I've done an assessment for them. I can bring it up to HUD and say, four high enough, can I get them into the next room? And they're really good about that, trying to keep people that are already in South County, allowing me to take them in first. And do these tend to be people who have jobs and work in the area? I've had a few of them who have come in the last year and they were working, but they had to leave because they were living at the shelter. They came in from the shelter and they were working in like Pittsfield area. And so they did have to change jobs when they moved down here. So that does happen. So usually when they work, do come here to transitional. If they're not already from the area, the bus schedule just doesn't work. Courtney, you told me that the residents have kitchens. How do they get food? Food stamps in Massachusetts, they're really good about if somebody's homeless and they apply for food stamps, they can usually get emergency food stamps within a week. The only barrier that I've come across with people, and I'm sure Julie can speak to this, is they do have to have an address. They have to have an address to apply. So sometimes I will allow them to use like our office address, just to put something down. If they don't have an address and they don't have someone else's they can use and they haven't reached out to Construct, they're not going to get food stamps. But homeless people who are homeless and apply for food stamps, they get quite a bit. I have individuals getting up to 300 a month. Transitional housing is a way station on the way to permanent affordable housing. Courtney, you've already mentioned that people are staying longer in transitional housing. Are you able to help them find permanent affordable housing? HUD had rolled out a bunch of emergency housing vouchers, I'd say a good six, nine months ago now. They rolled out a bunch of these housing vouchers. So it's a Section 8 voucher. Client would find the apartment that you the client pays a percentage of their income towards it and the voucher picks up the remainder and they can use that voucher forever. Currently, I have three people with those vouchers and one person has already gone almost six months with the voucher and we haven't been able to find him anything. He's in danger of losing it. Because, you know, And we've gone, we've seen apartments, we've talked to landlords, we've called hundreds of places everywhere in Massachusetts and it's just we cannot find landlords who are a willing to take a section eight voucher 
And the process, once you do find an apartment, the process is lengthy. They have to fill out a lot of paperwork. They have to get an inspection and all that. And then by that time, it's a couple of months where they could have just rented it out within a week of showing it to us. So that's, those are the issues that we have been coming into with the last six months. So even the emergency vouchers from HUD, you're not able to use because the housing supply isn't here and the landlords aren't willing to forego rent for a couple of months while everything processed. In speaking with Julie and Courtney, as well as Nina and Cameron, who you'll hear later, the need for public transportation and the consequence of the lack of it have come up repeatedly. It's a huge problem. Huge problem. Not only is it a problem for people who are trying to get housed and need transportation to get to work and appointments and stuff. Then you also have, if somebody comes to Construct and they're homeless, living out on the street, they want to get to the shelter, closest shelter is Pittsfield, right? So if they call me at four o'clock in the afternoon, the last bus is running in 55 minutes. Transportation, it's an issue even trying to get people to the shelter to get just a bed for the night. There's been times where I've put somebody in a hotel because they called after hours and they couldn't get to the shelter because the bus wasn't running. And I, in the seven o'clock in the morning, got and run down and gave them a bus pass so they can get up to Pittsfield. Transportation is a huge issue. I also have a lot of people in recovery in my transitional housing program, and it's hard for them to get to meetings and stuff because a lot of the meetings are at night. They can't get back. A lot of them don't have vehicles. The transportation issue affects people in, in a lot of different ways. Is there anybody talking about a solution to that problem? Is there a solution? I did a survey and I can't, I don't remember who sent it to me, but it was a survey asking if the clients that I serve would benefit from like an Uber type thing where it's a little bit cheaper than Uber and it would only be for rides to like grocery store appointments, work, that type of thing. And this was maybe a last summer. So I don't know whatever happened with that, but I know that it has been a topic of discussion with agencies in the, in the community. The lack of adequate public transportation affects the population at the emergency shelter as well. That definitely has a huge impact. A lot of people that come into the shelter, they're going to get the jobs in either manufacturing industry, the restaurants, or the stores, the majority of which are down toward Dalton or in Dalton or out in the Lanesboro or down in Lee. And our rapid transit system, our buses run until I think six o'clock. We have people that are walking two hours to get home from work. Now imagine getting out of work at 11 p.m. You're walking until 1 a.m. And then the shelter closes at 8 a.m. So that has an impact on them. Or let's say they call them into work, say, hey, you want some extra hours? I need you. If it's after 6 p.m., it's going to take them two hours to get there because they can't afford a taxi. So now they've got to walk down and then the supervisor, like, never mind, I'll find someone else. I can't wait two hours. We've got to rush right now. I need you now. So again, every one thing and limitation of one thing impacts the other thing. So are they able to keep these jobs? Are they too exhausted to keep these jobs? Because then you just have the stress of living in a shelter. 
and having to be out at 8 a.m. Monday through Friday. So everyone who spends the night at the shelter, at least during the week, has to be out at 8 a.m.? That's all a limitation of budget. Now, we had, during the pandemic, not right away, but we had a warming center. Uh, the Christian Center worked with the city, and then we staffed it. So they had gotten like a temporary shelter. It was an old construction trailer. And we would be open from 8.30 to 3.30. And then, so that would then, they had a place to come get warm. They could eat their lunch there. They could get some coffee. If they wanted to hang out there all day, they could. And that first winter, when it came, it was pretty busy. But this past winter really wasn't because now that things have opened up, people do go other places. They go to the library and they go to the senior center. And so there's other places that people go. A lot of times when people say well, they have nowhere to go, it's that people are choosing not to go to those places that are open. Because I'll tell you, that's you want to talk about a supportive place, the library. I was so impressed with them because coming from Troy, Albany, I got to be honest, they weren't that tolerant. They're like, get out of here. Again, it was that we don't want our patrons to see poor people or, or homeless people. We read books. So there's all of this kind of uppityness about it but pittsfield public library they have been amazing our guests will go in there during the day and they go into the area that's like kind of the cafeteria area and it's not that they're like screaming and yelling or fighting either but they're because i think they also know that they are accepted there so they don't feel the need to do that i'm sure it happens but it happens with people that aren't homeless too anywhere you go there's going to be someone creating a scene at some point but so there are other places some of them even do have family and they might go there for the day but they can't stay there maybe there's too many people maybe a lot of times what happens is someone maybe was staying with their mother but their mother was in public housing and public housing found out about it and then mother was going to lose her place to live if she allowed someone else to be there that wasn't on the lease We've been speaking to Julie and Courtney, who are in the rural Berkshires. So let's travel 2,000 miles to the south now, where the weather permits homeless people to be outdoors much of the time. The weather difference makes the homeless population more visible than in the colder Berkshires. San Antonio has numerous agencies and institutions working to house the homeless, including Haven for Hope, SAM, South Alamo Regional Housing for the Homeless, and Thrive, a transitional housing program where two of our guests met. We'll speak with Leela Powell about successes that San Antonio has had in reducing the homeless population. I get to wear two hats. I'm not only the executive director of LISC, but I am the board president of the South Alamo Regional Alliance for the Homeless. So a lot of what I know about this situation comes from our really fantastic continuum of care, which is called SARA, South Alamo Regional Alliance for the Homeless. And SARA, along with Haven, is responsible for a system called HMIS, which is a data system and which tracks individuals and gives us great information about who is being helped and who still, you know, needs to find a good a placement. So because we know so much about that community and we have a very good system of uh, data around tracking incidents and what it would cost to address Wait, that. I'm so for permanent supportive housing, which is a term of science, actually, it's a specific definition that HUD supplies. 
permanent supportive housing is for individuals who have comorbidities. <laughs> it's a terrible phrase, but people who have some existing chronic conditions and have experienced homelessness repeatedly or for a long duration of time. Because we know specifically what populations need that housing. We have a good sense of how many units we would need, which is about a thousand in this community. And that gives us the opportunity to set aside funding, to bring all the partners to the table, to aim for a specific goal in terms of the, the number of units. Now, I will say that is for the population that we know right now and that we work closely with. And because homeless management system is so good, because we have so many partners that are entering data and monitoring data and we're able to do a uh, a uh, good analysis on those numbers. We can even tell you individuals who might be good candidates for those units. That doesn't mean that more people won't come to San Antonio and experience homelessness or that other families in San Antonio won't uh, in the future experience homelessness and need that same level of, of assistance. It's just a projection based on what we've seen historically and what we know now about the population. And that's a very specific methodology, for example, San Antonio was one of the first cities in the country to reach what's called functional zero with our veterans homelessness population because veter zero veterans homelessness doesn't mean that no veteran ever experiences homelessness. It means that when someone experiences homelessness who is a veteran, we have the resources to reach out to them. It doesn't mean that we can compel someone to take advantage of those resources. And it doesn't mean that veterans in the future won't experience homelessness. It does mean that we have the resources to address the needs of those individuals. It's Haven for Hope, which houses temporarily so many homeless people. A partner in this? Absolutely. And then the Veterans Administration here, the, the hospitals? Yes. And, so and there are very specific interventions. For example, there's a voucher that veterans can get to pay for housing. And it's called VASH. And that voucher can be made available to help finance a project that will serve veterans. You mentioned SAM, San Antonio Metropolitan Ministries. They're the largest recipient of HUD homelessness funding in our community. And they do work within a number of different programs. HUD for many years focused on emergency housing and what was called transitional housing. And the housing first strategy essentially says, you don't wait for someone to pass a milestone. You don't wait for someone to get counseling. You put someone into a housing unit as soon as you can find a housing unit for that individual. And that doesn't mean that you just put them in there and walk away. You put them in there and surround them with services and you offer them things, substance use counseling or financial counseling. But it's not a condition of the housing first lease that the tenant has to accept that type of counseling and supportive service. Haven is a piece of the puzzle, and they are a, a very strong collaborative partner in, in all aspects of addressing homelessness. And that's a pretty complex picture. It includes intensive street outreach so that there are folks who are on the streets every day making contact with, establishing relationships with, providing um, some supports, but helping people understand that there are other options for them. So that's the street outreach piece, particularly with COVID. Emergency shelter funds were increased during COVID, and we experienced some different types of emergency shelters, such as leasing hotels and motels. 
And in the jargon, it's that's called non-congregate sheltering. So you're putting someone into their own hotel room. And this might not be someone who's experienced their own housing in, in many years, in decades for, for some individuals. And that actually can be a nice pathway to a, a housing first model where someone might be going into it's a small studio apartment, but it is their own place. So we did see some real interesting learning experience is not only through the COVID, but also through winter storm Uri, when we had folks who had never experienced that level of cold and snow over a number of days. And, and we had about a hundred new individuals who came into the system here that had never been in the system before. These were people who we just didn't know were out there. And that could be everything because they have a companion. They don't want to be separated. So, so there, there are reasons that people don't come into the system. And the majority of those folks, almost three quarters of those individuals stayed in the system. Thank you, Leela. Now we'll turn to Cameron Reyes and Nina Lockwood, both in their 20s, who have experienced homelessness and now are working with the entities we have mentioned to help other homeless youth navigate the system and move toward a stable future. How long had you been homeless, Cameron? In total, I was homeless for 13 months. And how did that come about? What caused that? It was a bad situation. I was staying with some people who had a son who had mental health issues and was also abusing drugs. So the combination of that one day ended up leading to him trying to attack me and my safety was at risk at that point. Uh, the cops were called, but they said that they weren't going to take him to the hospital. They weren't going to arrest him. And since he was 17 and a minor, they said that legally his parents couldn't kick him out of the residence. So at that point, I had to take it into my own hands and be like, I can't stay here anymore, but I don't have anywhere to go. I ended up reaching out to a friend of a friend's mom, and she ended up calling around and found out about thrive at Haven. And so I ended up getting taken to Roy Moss the night before I went into thrive because it was an emergency situation. And so I just needed somewhere to stay for the night. Roy Moss is only more for 24, 48 hours. It's like oh. emergency situations before you can get sent somewhere else that could take you because I didn't have anywhere to go. And Thrive ended up being a place that had a program that was six months long, but I ended up staying past time because of the founder of Thrive, you know, she thought that I needed more time to really get situated. So it was a case by case basis, but yeah, that's how it came to be there. And Nina, when did you become homeless and why? So like with all of us, even the non-founding members, life can get complicated. There's a whole reason why people end up homeless. For me, I'm also one of the eldest of the founding members. So I'm older than Cam. Yeah, it, I was like 23, 24. I just got in before the age range. But um, when I became homeless, it was an issue of pretty much domestic issues, family issues, being gay didn't help, and just not really having a lot of resources. I was still in college. And the most valuable thing I had was my car. So I was actually very lucky that I had a car to live into. 
because I didn't have a lot of places to, to stay. When you're homeless and you're couch surfing like me and Cam did, your spots aren't going to be reliable for very long, more than likely. It's temporary. So I was couch surfing. I didn't have anywhere to go. I didn't have a lot of money. I had a part-time fast food job. I had no good start-off point. The issue was I got in a domestic dispute with my mom's then boyfriend. My other family members weren't reliable and they were at weird distances. I didn't really have reliable friends either. And they had issues with their boyfriends or their husbands or wives or whatever. And I was, I was basically on my own. I didn't really have a lot of options. So I was making it basically paycheck to paycheck. I was lucky enough to have a fast food job. And I think someone gave me a card for the San Antonio housing department. I remember it was Miss Marjorie White for San Antonio. I got lucky that she got a hold of me. She talked to me on the phone. She asked for my email and she gave me a bunch of resources. One of them was also Roy Moss and another was Thrive. And the reason why Thrive interested me is because it was LGBT friendly. And uh, I had been having a lot of issues with just no offense, but straight people really causing me a lot of problems. And it, it interested me. And so I got lucky to get a hold of Miss Sandy. She showed me around and uh, it was, it's a scary spot to have to go into a shelter, but I had been couch surfing for, it had been about a year. I was going from in and out of my car to different spots staying at from various lengths of time. It was unreliable and I wasn't getting any good work. The area I was at, there wasn't a lot of job opportunities. Were you trying to to go to school at that time too? Oh, I gave up on school. I didn't, I couldn't go to school drive to and from school and do all of that. And I was close to getting my bachelor's, but I, that wasn't my main priority. My main priority was surviving. I was like, I need to find a spot to stay. I need to get a better job so I could afford food, housing, stability. And I was trying to do all that when I was living with my mom, but it just didn't work out. And it happens. Life happens. Where did you two meet to put the youth advisory board together? Thrive. We were still homeless when the YAB was still doing its thing before we were officially recognized. How did you get the group together, Cam? It started at Thrive. Two people that worked at Sarah at the time came to Thrive. Somebody from Thrive told us that they wanted to hear youth voice and hear about homelessness from the people who are actually experiencing it. So that way they could better address like the barriers and the lack of resources and that kind of thing. And it also helped that they were feeding us some good food because not to the food at Haven just wasn't that great. Okay. So like when we could get good food, that was always an incentive for us to go and at least hear them out. And from that point on, we didn't know exactly what the YAB was going to be. You said Sarah, what does Sarah stand for? The South Alamo Regional Alliance for the Homeless. Yeah, they they were they're like our liaison. We're the youth voice that helped bring our our input to for them, and they recognized us, and we ended up setting up our youth action board, and we even made it official. We have bylaws. We even have us the sitting member. Cam is still the sitting member. Our the so you're the president of the of the group, the head of the group, Cam. Yes, I've, I'm the first ever president of the Youth Action Board, and I won't be the last. So how did you each find housing? Where did you reach out 
and what were the frustrations and what have you looked for uh, to help others from your experience? I know that the moment you go into Thrive, they will go over with you what because you're going to have a case manager they go, and they they go over with you what your plan is to what to work on throughout the program. And then we signed up for housing whenever each of us had first gotten there. I got there later. Cam was already there. I think he had already also signed up for housing. Yeah, and, uh, list. Yeah, you. it's a waiting list. So it wasn't guaranteed. So my main priority was getting work because you can't really get an apartment with a part-time job. You really can't. Unless you have a roommate or two, you can't. So my my priority, and I told the others realistically, the main priority is to get a full-time job. And this was before COVID. We got very lucky that we were able to get the help we needed right before COVID. I, I got my full-time job and housing assistance has definitely helped because getting the full-time job and living pay, paycheck to paycheck is hard enough. But with housing assistance, I was able to save a bit more money so I could have a backup for if I need my car fixed or if I have to do some health stuff or emergency money. So that's been helpful. I was homeless in total at Thrive for 13 months. So when I first got to Thrive, that's when I was put on the wait list for housing. And I was there for 13 months before I was finally told that I came up on the list. Did that come with housing assistance when they found a place for you? Yeah, it was me and the housing case manager who actually, we both looked together for housing. And when I was able to actually go, because at that time I had started a new job that I had for almost two years and I was working Monday through Friday. So I was only free on the weekends to actually do anything. So that meant like, It would have to be like a Saturday. I moved into my apartment at the end of October in 2019. What did you try to make happen when you started the Youth Action Board? What did you need that you couldn't get at that time? Even though I was still the oldest, I was still not even in my mid-20s. I was like 23, 24. I don't think I was 25 yet. And it just, it was really, I was actually very inspired too, that these people that were older than us were actually willing to listen, to help us, work with us to help build this foundation to make the changes. So what were the changes that you wanted to see made? Cam, did you have a list when you started? At first, what my main thing was, is to address the barriers for a youth to be getting housing. So not having an ID or your social or whatever else it may be addressing that to figure out, okay, what do I need to get here? Like, how do I get from A to B? A lot of people don't have birth certificates and social, so they can't get a job um, and they don't know where to go or what to do because they're like 18 to 20. And some of them have been in a bad spot, worse, way worse than us, like drugs, more drugs than themselves or family or more domestic issues or they've been homeless longer. So a lot of them don't understand. And that's another thing we had to tell them. There's some things we don't understand. You're going to have to explain it to us. And they're like, oh, we didn't know that. We thought you knew. And we're like, we signed up for housing. We don't know how long that is, how long the wait list is or how that works. And we need a place to stay. We're homeless. This program's six months, give or take. And they're like, oh, okay. So it was, we had our grievances while we were homeless that we told them about. And then throughout that, like Cam said, our list has gotten bigger 
on prioritizing and stuff. So now you have a way to help kids who are homeless to get the identification documents that they need. They know there's a place to go and you can get that. Not just that, but also basic food and shelter at the time. And also like bus passes, being able to get around. Some of them don't have, they weren't lucky enough to have a car like me. They need to be able to get around safely. So it's a lot of different things, food, where to go for food, where to go to take a shower. If they're not in a shelter, if there's no room in a shelter, pretty much everything that's needed. If there are on the street, they're going to need supplies. Where can they get those supplies for cheap? Where can they go for day work to get quick money? Pretty much everything, not just identification, but what's needed to survive until they can get more help. And so how do they access that information then? Is there outreach to them or they have to go in somewhere? How does that work? Because there's nonprofits that'll do outreach. I know Corazon Ministries is like one of the major nonprofits that does outreach. And their thing is to help with the people who are addicted to drugs. That's what they do. And that's tied to homelessness because I became homeless because of somebody else's drug use. So it's all very interconnected. And so other organizations and nonprofits that are doing outreach, I know Thrive does outreach. They have at least a couple people that go out pretty much every day, I'm sure, and go give them supplies and resources of where you can go for the night or where can you go for medical help. You need to see a doctor and you don't have insurance, you don't have any money. You can go here for free and get that all checked out. It's like outreach is what really drives them to those resources more and, than anything. And you've helped the people who are doing the outreach to understand what you need. Oh, yes. Because, yeah. yeah, because we've also noticed another thing is how to tell people this stuff, how to get the young people to know. And you don't have to go up to them verbally. We want that information readily available. Because let's say they're because a lot of times you're not going to say or know you're homeless. Like it just happens. So we want those resources where they're going to see it and know about it. Look it up, go online and from there, go where they got to go. Any places possible, as much places as possible online, at schools. We've been, that's one of the things we've been working on. The other issue was the human trafficking issue. Is that something that you've seen and had to deal with or helped the Sarah to deal with? So most programs, especially with these nonprofits or shelters, they're actually, a lot of them are, I don't know the specifics on training, but they have a lot of experience in figuring out if someone's being possibly trafficked, groomed in a way, because a kid who's young and homeless and hungry and they're just trying to make it, if someone else is giving them those resources, that's what they care the most about. And it's a dangerous spot. And it is scary, especially being downtown. It, they, we try, that's another thing. Like The case managers do try to keep in touch and make sure everything's okay. But it, that's a scary thing that, yeah, we probably going to talk more about with Roy Moss has mentioned that before something that you feel needs more attention is that yeah because it's that's a very real thing we would hear about it 
throughout. Another success that Cam and Nina and the Youth Advisory Board have had is working with Sarah to obtain a grant that includes funds for technology that allows them to participate and interact with Sarah and includes funds for a centrally located drop-in center for youth where they can get the sort of information and support we've been talking about. That drop-in center is up and running. We'll give Cam and Nina the last word on homelessness. I think when people think of homelessness in general, not just youth homelessness, they need to listen to the person with an open heart and an open mind when they're telling them their story and how they got there. Because there's this stigma around homelessness where people think it's a choice or it's something that's easy to get out of. And it's really not just even putting Haven's address on job applications. The jobs yeah. will throw out the application. Yeah. And not even the, get it. Look. Won't get, yeah. Won't get there's that. Yeah. It's that stigma around it. Yeah. And I, I just think that people need to go into it open heart, open mind and actually listen to what's going on instead of using that judgment. Another thing that I've noticed is if someone notices someone who is homeless, like a young homeless kid wandering the street, it they're going to it's a bit because of the stigma and because a lot of people don't know how to handle it. I would suggest just being practical, calm, practical. Try to look in your city to see if there's a resource trying if you I don't if. It also depends if you know the person personally or not, because a lot of people don't realize or don't think it's that serious. But. I've known even before I was homeless, people who have been homeless. They couch surfed, they slept under a bridge at night, they had to go to a friend's house because they had issues. Just try to be fair, like Cam said, try to be understanding and practical. Be like, the main things they're going to want to know is where to find a place to stay, where where they can get food, and then where they can get money. So try to help them find those resources with because again every city might be different but here we try and give them those resources for that so that way they know where to go and we're not going to stigmatize them we understand do you need this yes or no is there anything else you need that we're missing or just because i understand i know me and cam know because we understand because we've lived it some people don't know how to handle it and that's understandable it's a very delicate situation so just be patient be fair just be practical. I understand there's a stigma on it, but it's really, it really gets complicated. And so just be a, a little empathetic, c- calm and patient. Thank you, Nina Lockwood, Cameron Rees, Courtney Kimball, Julie McDonald, and Leela Powell for providing us with so many insights into homelessness and ways to address it. Tell us what you think about the issue we discussed. You can find out more information about our guests and links to the entities we mentioned in San Antonio and the Berkshires in the show notes on the Living Well Into the Future tab on the Berkshire Ollie website, berkshireolly.org. That's berkshireolly.org. You'll find this in future episodes of Living Well into the Future on WTBRFM.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. You can even ask your smart device to play Living Well into the Future podcast.
You can reach us at lwitf22 at gmail.com. That's lwitf22 at gmail.com. Our thanks from me, Julie B. Adler, to Berkshire Ali and its Changing Aging Special Interest Group, and WTBR-FM 89.7 FM Pittsfield for their support, and to our team members, Fran Weinberg, Alan Kofstein. Our music is by Michael Koppenheffer. Our graphics are by Gene Rosso. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and not of WTBR Berkshire Ali or the LWITF production team.